I met with uh, Tom a little over a week ago, a week last Thursday, and it was then Tom gave me uh, the, the dates in which I would actually be bringing the word to the church, and the date was actually due to be the 26th of this month, um, and so it was from then that I started working on uh, Romans, the second half of Romans 1 and the beginning of Romans 2, and uh, that word is a work in progress at the moment. Um, but the, the following day, Tom phoned and said that uh, in all likelihood he was likely to be going to Singapore and could I cover this Sunday and that he confirmed that the following day. So rather than actually um, rushing that work in progress, um, I thought I'd br bring this morning, particularly as it ties in with some of the things that we'd already said uh, in our introduction to the book of Romans, um, I thought I'd just bring the word that uh, I've been... Uh, preparing in my studies, not particularly to bring to the church. It was, a, I believe, a personal word for me. Now, I had felt, um, for several reasons, the need to actually study the life of Abraham. I think Sue mentioned a few weeks ago in house group um, that she'd been studying and what a blessing it was to study the life of Abraham. So I was actually making use of uh, online study Bibles where you can get someone reading the word to you. It's amazing what stands out. And one particular chapter did stand out, out for me and I, I'd like to speak on that particular chapter this morning. Now again, some of you also are aware that uh, a few weeks back I had an interview for a job. Um, it was at uh, a place called Yeldor Manor. It's a rehabilitation uh, centre for people recovering from alcohol and drug addiction. And it's working, in, uh, working as a finance assistant in their offices. And uh, although the interview went very well, um, they did give me an admin task and, uh, and sadly I wasn't able to actually complete that task. And I did leave there, um, and I suppose that evening I, I did feel more than a little embarrassed at not being able to complete that task. And I didn't sleep too well that night. And uh, when I woke in the morning, um, I had a feeling of unease, a, a sense of inner disquiet. And so, as I was giving thanks for my breakfast that, that morning, I, I asked the Lord to, to, to speak into the situation, to give me a word, uh, a little bit of guidance and understanding. Um, what I wasn't expecting that was the uh, the answer would actually come sort of quite so quickly, um, because I don't know whether I was still sort of munching away on my cereal or I just put it down. Um, I was just sort of glancing aimlessly at our bookcase, and I I just pulled out a little booklet and it's called the Word, um, and uh, I'm not sure exactly how I came about this booklet. I think it was sort of one of those kind of um, freebies that was put on the table at the back of our old church that I, that I just picked up and just thought, well, that looks interesting. I must read through that sometime. And, uh, and if that is the case, then it's been on our bookcase for well over three years, having sort of been untouched. But I, but I opened uh, this booklet, and uh, the, the first little article, it's just a, a page and a half, um, just like a kind of an extended daily study guide that that, that some of you use, and it's called Servants and Service. And uh, that, little, um, that little word in there really spoke to me, and it was what I needed to hear at the time. It wasn't an answer, yes, you're going to be going to work at Yale, or, or no, you're not. But it actually did speak about my attitude, and that, uh, that my attitude needed to be brought into the line 
with the, the servant described in that little study. And it's a study on Genesis chapter 24. And, uh, and incidentally, when I was looking, were listening through uh, the, um, the life of Abraham with the study Bible, this chapter 24 did really stand out to me as something I really ought to look into. Um, and so I spent the next couple of days... Um, with my Bible open, with my notepad there, and I, as I looked into it and made notes, I suddenly filled up several pages of, of A4 on my, on my notepad. And at the time, I didn't think that I would, uh, would necessarily bring this to the church. But uh, when the opportunity arose and Tom said that he was going off, I th- since I had already had extensive notes on this chapter, I thought this would be an opportune moment to actually bring it to the church. Um, one of the things I mentioned is that uh, in our studies into the book of Romans, the first thing we learn about Paul is that Paul is described as a bondservant. And how that attitude, that knowledge of being a bondservant, was important in enabling him to bring the right word on the right occasion to the church in Rome. And uh, what we see in uh, Genesis chapter 24 is the life of a servant outworked. So I've called this talk this morning, The Outworking of Grace. So with that all in mind, um, let's turn to chapter 24 in the book of Genesis. And as in always, um, I, th- I don't think it's wrong to keep pointing this out, just to remind you that uh, any word that's brought to you, you need to diligently search before the Lord and uh, ask, ask him to confirm his word to us. And that uh, if anything that I say is not in line with, with, with what you read in the word this morning, then like, um, I've forgotten the names of the, the, for the two. Uh, the Bereans. The Bereans. I was actually thinking of the, the two. What was the, what was the, the couple that uh, took Apollos aside? Priscilla and Aquila, that's right. Okay. Um, To take me to one side and just to show me a more excellent way. So do be discerning in in all that you hear this morning. But let's turn to Genesis chapter 24. And just reading through this uh, chapter is an absolute blessing. Uh, It's a long chapter, so do bear with me as I read it to you. Now Abraham was old well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family, And take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. 
So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one. Let her be the one you have appointed to your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened. Before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin, no man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let down her pitcher to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was, when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a golden nose ring weighing about half a shekel, and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please. Is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, the son of Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth towards my master. As for me, being on the way, The Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to to the man by the well. So it came to pass, when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels. 
and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son among from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land you dwell, in, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I walk, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And you shall take a wife for my son, from my family, and from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family. For if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And this day I came by the well and said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I will go, Behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, Please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, Drink, and I will draw water for your camels too. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But before I'd finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, please give me a drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank, and she gave, your cam and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Melchor bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist. And I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may return, that I may turn to the right or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, either bad or good. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass, when Abraham's servant heard the words, that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the Lord brought out jewellery of silver, jewellery of gold and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning and said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that she may go. 
And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, so that I may go to my master. So they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah and her sister and her nurse and, Re- and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands and may your descendants possess the gates of those that hate them. Then Rebekah and her maids arose and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahai, Beer Lahai Roy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after, her, after his mother's death. Now we've just read the account of how Abraham's servant successfully completed his mission to find a wife for Abraham's son Isaac. And in it we read how the servant diligently set about the given task, faithfully serving his master and always having his master's interest as his primary focus. Now in many ways this account, a real historical event, it paints a portrait of the Christian life. There is much we as Christians can learn from it. Now I want to begin with a question. What was the servant's name? See, you're looking down and saying, well, we don't know. See, one of the most important and profound lessons we can learn from the fact that we're not told his name is that our Christian lives, as we serve the living God, we're to do so modestly, with humility, and not seeking distinction for ourselves. And this is why I have a problem with people who set up ministries in their own name. You've seen this sort of thing, Fred Smith Ministries. Some even add their name to the Bible, so you get the Joe Bloggs Study Bible. Now these are fictional names, uh, because a lot of people do this, and I don't want to single out anyone in particular. Now, Paul described himself as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, totally committing himself to serving his interests, fully understanding that he, as he served his master's interests, seeking first his kingdom, that all his own needs would be amply supplied. And turning to the passage in particular, verse 1 tells us that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And the servant would have witnessed firsthand all the blessings that Abraham had received from God throughout his life and into his old age. At this time, Abraham was approaching 150 years old. The vast ages that men once lived to were becoming a thing of the past. And God had blessed Abraham in every area of his life. He blessed him spiritually, for God had spoken to him. God had made promises to him. God had made a covenant with him. 
He'd delivered him from his enemies. He'd restored him. And he'd answered his intercessory prayers on behalf of his nephew Lot. He'd also blessed Abraham physically. And as you read through the account of Abraham's life, you'll see that Abraham enjoyed good health and he had been strong and active throughout his life. He'd blessed him materially. We read in the passage how he had gold, silver, livestock and many servants. He'd given him offspring and brought peace into his family and to his household in general. That wasn't continual perpetual peace. There was considerable disruption at, uh, in the events surrounding the birth of his son Ishmael. But generally over time it was a peaceful household. Now as Abram's servant, he too had been the beneficiary of all the blessings that God had given Abraham. See, when God blessed Abraham, the whole household experienced those benefits. And whatever gifts and blessings that you've received from the Lord, they're for the benefit of the whole body. We're in a body when God has commanded us to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And gifts that we are given are for service and for service within the body. Now this unnamed man, described as Abraham's oldest servant, he'd proven over a long period of time to be faithful in his service. He had been tried and tested over many years and found to have been trustworthy and reliable. And Abraham knew all this by experience and therefore made him ruler and overseer of all his affairs and possessions. Verse 2 states that he ruled over all that he had and verse 10 says, for all his master's goods were in his hand. It reminds me of the advice Paul gave to Timothy, saying, be diligent to present yourself approved to God and to be a vessel for honour, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So Abraham entrusts him with this most important, intimate and sensitive of tasks, to find a wife for his son. And notice we first meet this trusted servant. He's in communion with his master. For it's only as we spend time with our master that we learn of his will and receive clear instruction from him. And notice also, it was the father's responsibility to choose a wife for his son. Do we trust our heavenly father with the most important, the most sensitive and the most intimate decisions of our lives? Do we seek wisdom from the one who knows and wants what is best for us? Now Abraham did not actually choose Isaac's wife. If we study carefully, we see that he was in fact making provision for God to choose. See, he was responding to God's promise that the land would be given to his descendants. He was acting in the light of the information he had at the time. All the details had not been worked out. He did not know specifically who Isaac would marry. In all likelihood, he would not even have been aware of Rebekah's existence. So in sending his servant to seek a wife from his father's house, from his family, Abraham was demonstrating his belief in God's promise through active obedience. He took a course of action which revealed a willingness and an expectancy for God to intervene and to make that choice. Now we see here a principle that continues right through scripture, even into the New Testament. The principle that the people of God should only marry within the people of God. 
Isaac was not to have a wife from among the Canaanites. Having said that, both the Old and the New Testaments both account for the fact that there are circumstances in which people did indeed marry outside God's people. And although the Bible never endorses doing so, it does reveal that God is merciful and can bring blessing from that situation. The book of Ruth probably being the most well-known example. In the instructions given to his servant, Abraham made it abundantly clear, stating twice, that Isaac was not to make the journey to the land where his family dwelt, where he'd been called out from, presumably because he feared that Isaac would be pressured into remaining there and become assimilated back into their culture. See, when we're called out of this world, there is no turning back. It's true that we go into the world, but not to become part of it. Instead, we go into the world to bring people out of it, to bring them out of the kingdom of this world and into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the discussion between Abraham and his servant reminds us that prayer is a two-way process. We read here that the servant asks questions to clarify the limits of his responsibility. His questions reveal that this was a humble man who had a right appreciation of himself. He knew his capabilities. He knew that he could make the journey. He knew that he was resourceful enough to find the right place and to ask the right questions and to deliver a message. However, the response of those receiving this message was out of his hands. He could neither persuade nor force a positive response from either Rebecca or her family. So Abraham made it clear that if the woman would not return with him, then he would be released from his oath. So the servant accepted the task by the swearing of an oath. Now one of the signs of an ungodly society is when oaths are misused. Have you noticed how people try to authenticate what they say by, say, by swearing, it's the truth, honest. On my mother's life is a constant refrain you'll hear in playgrounds around, around the schools. And when I was growing up, and I don't hear it so much these days, but when I was at Harry's age at primary school, we used to say, um, cross my heart and hope to die. <laughs> now Jesus counselled against this kind of speech, stating, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, if you always mean what you say, then there's no need to swear in order to convince someone that you really are telling them the truth. See, oaths are not meant to be part of common speech. They're only to be made under special circumstances of utmost importance. They're not something you do every day. They're not appropriate for off-the-cuff decisions. Oaths should only be made when the gravity of the situation demands it, such as in legal matters or marriage, for example, and then only after serious prayerful consideration. Now, one of the consequences of making the language of oaths common is that it diminishes the seriousness with which we make those solemn promises we're all too aware of its effects with the breakdown of marriage in this land and the increasing injustice in the courtroom and the legal system in general, which appears more and more to becoming the preserve of the rich, justice for those who can afford to pay for it. Verse 10 tells us that the servant was fully equipped for the task. In addition to the provision of ten camels mentioned, the servant was accompanied by other men. We see that in verse 32 and treasures as gifts for Abraham's family, we see in verse 53. He went to Nahor in Mesopotamia. 
When God calls us to a task, calls us to do a task, he equips us with all that we need to accomplish our mission. He tells us exactly where we are to go. He gives clear instruction and direction so that we can make effective plans. He gives us instruction, direction and provision in order to accomplish what he has given us to do. Now that does not mean that this will be easy. The journey was difficult. It was a long journey fraught with danger. Now at this moment, if you've uh, got maps in the back of your Bible, it might be appropriate just to turn to them. Now although this map might appear quite big to me, it's going to be very tiny to you, but the sort of map that you need to be looking at in the back of your Bible is kind of this one, and quite often you'll see maps with this kind of green crescent shape around the Middle Eastern region. And the journey actually, we learned that uh, Isaac and Abraham were based in the south of Israel, and they had to travel right to the north of this region, to the region around Haran. And if you look at the, if your Bible has a little scale on the bottom, you'll notice that that journey is approximately 600 miles. It's a, it's a bit like um, riding from here to Inverness on a camel. Now the train, the, the, sorry, the terrain was, uh, was not easy. It was often hilly and semi-arid. And you'll see that there were a few rivers to get water. And we do know from the biblical accounts that throughout that region, people would dig wells in order to maintain an adequate water supply for their communities. Now if we assume that they covered about 20 miles a day, it would take at least a month to get there. So the journey would have therefore required very careful planning in order to ensure that they were adequately resourced for the journey. Now, this leads us maybe to ask some speculative questions. Is this why Abraham didn't go? Was it because of his advanced age that the journey would have been too much for him? Now, we're not told these things, and any answer we do give is, in fact, pure speculation. But Abraham would have had his reasons, good reasons, no doubt. But we're not told why he did not go himself and entrusted such an important task to his servant. However, it does remind us that God has chosen to include us and use us, his servants, to fulfil his purposes, to build his kingdom, to call people out of the world to become a bride for his son. He could do this himself, but in his wisdom, grace and mercy, he has charged us with the responsibility of going into all the world to preach the gospel and to make disciples in his name. Now, if we are to be used by God to carry out his purposes, we need to put into action what he has commanded us to do, and to do so making use of the provisions that he's made available to us. The next information we are given in this account is when we read in verse 11 that the servant had indeed completed the journey. He went, and and we now find him at a well just outside the city of Nahor. Having acted obediently to the instructions given, he was now in a position where he could be used by God to carry out his plans and purposes. The instructions he had been given were general details. He now needed more specific information. Who is the one? The servant knows that only God can provide the details that will bring success to his mission. So he prays. 
Notice as he prays, his primary concern is for the interest of his master. He asked for success, it's true, but his success was for his master's glory. He says, show kindness to my master Abraham. This, I believe, should remind us of what it means to ask in Jesus' name. Are our prayers for his glory? When we pray for wisdom, guidance or provision, is our primary concern for his glory? Are we seeking first his kingdom and righteousness? In verse 13, the servant describes his situation. He tells God, this is how it is. This is how I see things. Now, he did not do so because God needed telling. For God sees all things, even the secrets of our hearts. But he wants us to tell him and to ask him and to communicate with him. For God wants a relationship with us. And notice too that he prays with an expectancy that God will give him a specific answer. He expects God to speak into his circumstances. Verse 14 shows that this man had learned to pray in accordance with God's will. He knew the promise that God had made to Abraham, that God's promises would be fulfilled through his descendants. The woman who was from Abraham's family, he expects, would also bear the family likeness. Through years of faithful service, he had seen the character that God was forming in Abraham and those in his household. He would therefore expect to see godliness in the character in the one that God had chosen. And this godliness of character would be revealed by, by what she did, not just, not just in what she said, but in what she did. He would therefore expect her to be kind, thoughtful, generous, hospitable, and that these qualities would be evident in the way she dealt with him. You see, from the very beginning, man was made in the image of God. Now this image was damaged and distorted when Adam chose to disobey God and seek independence from him. The message we read in the first chapter of Romans is that if we willfully ignore God, suppressing what we know to be true, then his image in which we were made will become increasingly distorted. However, when we acknowledge God, and call upon his name, when we repent and make a decision to live his way, when we commit our way to him, believing and trusting in the atonement that Christ achieved for us at Calvary, he will work in us and through us, conforming us to the image of his Son. Our characters will become increasingly Christ-like, and this will be evidenced in outward behaviour as well as in our attitudes. This is what Abraham was like. This is what Abraham's family and household were like. Not perfect, but growing in these qualities. So the servant prayed in accordance with God's will that the young woman in whom he saw these qualities be, would be the one that God had chosen. And in verses 15 to 21, we're told that God indeed did communicate and confirm his choice. Now God sometimes spoke through direct words. But not in this instance. God spoke through the outworking of circumstances as the servant had prayed. And as we read through these verses, we see that Rebecca not only said what she would do, she simply got on and did it. Now I can't help smiling when I read verse 21. 
How often is it when God clearly answers our prayers, do we find ourselves like the servant wondering, is this God? Is God's hand in this? And even though the outworking of circumstances makes it obvious, at least to those on the outside, do we still question, particularly when we're in the centre of those circumstances? And this is why we need to be part of a body of trusted godly men and women to reassure us of God's hand and provision when we cannot see the wood for the trees. Requiring confirmation, the servant took action. He asked, whose daughter are you? And Rebecca's response confirmed what her character and her actions had already communicated. She indeed was the one whom God had chosen for Isaac. She identified herself as Nahor's granddaughter, therefore confirming both in word and deed that the Lord had led the servant to the right person. His search was over, but there was still more to be done. Rebecca had exceeded expectation. Not only had she given the servant a drink and tended his animals, she also extended that hospitality to offering the servant and those travelling with him a place to stay in her father's house. See, Rebecca's actions were precisely what Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And this is precisely what the servant did. He bowed his head in prayer, praise and worship to God for showing kindness and mercy to his master Abraham. Again we see his continued concern for his master's interest and he was not ashamed to call him master. Rebecca's response, eagerly running to inform her mother's household of all that had happened and to tell them that the servant of her great uncle Abraham was in town, leads us to ask several speculative questions. The gifts of a nose ring and bracelets appear to signal the intent of a proposal of marriage. So we can ask, was this something that Rebecca's family had been waiting for? We're told that she was a beautiful young woman, both in outward appearance and in inner character. No doubt there would have been many potential suitors for her. Was she, like Isaac, being kept from marrying outside the family for such an event as this? We don't know, but it is worth considering such possibilities. We do know that the servant's arrival caused considerable excitement throughout the whole household. And Laban, Rebecca's brother, ran out to meet him. Clearly they regarded this visit to be one of great importance and he ran out as a matter of urgency. With preparations having been made, he extended a blessing of honour and warm welcome to the servant. The same godly qualities seen in Rebecca were evident in her brother too. Laban, it appears, had assumed the responsibility of running the household and making major decisions concerning the family alongside his father, Bethuel. Presumably, Abraham's nephew, Bethuel, was advanced in years and therefore taken the decision to increasingly hand on the responsibility to Laban in these matters. The servant willingly accepted the offer of hospitality. However, he did not neglect his responsibility of first tending to the camels and then as a sign of respect, making sure his own feet and the feet of those who accompanied him were washed before entering the house. Although it was clear that God had been so ordering events in bringing the servant into Bethuel's house, the servant was very aware that his task was not yet complete. 
Neither was a successful outcome guaranteed. There was still work to be done, decisions to be made, and matters to be resolved. Showing a sense of urgency and a continued desire to place his master's interests above his own, he refused to eat until the matter at hand had been discussed and a decision had been reached. And in verses 34 to 41, we read that the ser- how the servant speaks fondly of his master. He gives accurate testimony of all that has happened, making clear his motives, intentions and purpose. Nothing is hidden. The nature of his mission to find a wife for Isaac is revealed. He describes how he has simply responded in active obedience to his master's instructions and makes known how God's providential ordering of circumstances has successfully brought him to them. And he concludes by asking them, how will they respond? Now this is what God calls us to do. To live in active obedience to his revealed will and to give testimony as to what he has done in our lives to those he sends us to. Like the servant, we can neither persuade nor pressure people into a decision. We are not responsible for how people respond or for the decisions that they make. Now a legitimate question to ask at this point is did Bethuel and his family know the Lord? Were they part of the people of God? And we have read in this chapter, re- what we have read in this chapter strongly suggests that they were. We have read about the godly character in Rebecca. Now the fact that she offered hospitality to the servant without the need first to run back and ask permission suggests that the family were well accustomed to showing hospitality and demonstrating love in practical ways and offering support to those in need. It appears to have been a characteristic of the family. Then there was Laban's greeting of the servant. He recognised him as being one blessed of the Lord. Now, does it not make sense that you must at least know of the Lord and of his ways in order to recognise someone as being blessed of the Lord? However, the strongest evidence must surely be their recognition of the Lord's will in so ordering the events that the servant had given testimony to and their willingness to respond in obedience without question. And on hearing their words of acceptance, the servant bowed his head and once more gave worship to God. The servant had spoken fondly of his master and had made known how he had been greatly blessed by God with with material wealth, with livestock and servants, and above all the blessing of a son Isaac. And in verse 53, the servant offers gifts of gold, silver and clothing to Rebekah and her family. These gifts were physical evidence that his testimony was true. The gifts displayed evidence of his master's glory. It wasn't just all talk. Do we display the physical evidence of our master's glory? Is what we say confirmed by physical reality? And just to borrow a line from that uh, small article I pointed out at the beginning, the writer summarises, The acceptable servant will always have about him that which will visibly display the glories of his master. With the matter now settled, it was only then that he and his fellow servants allowed themselves to have their own needs of food and drink met. Only then could they relax, rejoice and celebrate. However, in the morning, they soon realised that although the matter had been settled by agreement, the task was not yet complete. There was still the return journey to negotiate. 
It was then that they encountered one small problem. Laban and his mother made a request that their return journey be delayed at least 10 days. It seemed a reasonable request, but what good could it do? The delay would serve no useful purpose. It would inevitably lead Rebecca to look backwards to the past and encourage feelings of nostalgia. All it could achieve was to lead to potential doubt and increase those thoughts and emotions associated with leaving a missing home. In all, in all likelihood, it would diminish her desire to go. See, when we hear the call of God, we need to go. Delay is sometimes appropriate and sensible, but only when there is doubt. In this instance, a decision had been made, so there was no reason for delay. The matter was settled. God had made his will abundantly clear, and the servant felt a sense of urgency. His primary concern was again for his master's interests. To resolve this question of delay, they decided to ask Rebecca, and she agreed to go immediately. In verses 59 and 60, we read how the family gave Rebecca a blessing on her departure. And it was so important for her to receive that blessing, as indeed it is for all those who receive God's call to go. Firstly, it made parting easier. Secondly, it set her mind on the future. Notice how the blessing began. May you become. It would encourage her to look forward, not backwards. The blessing was an active encouragement to actively pursue God's plans and purposes for her life. Now as with the outward journey, we're given no details concerning the return. All we know is that the faithful servant provided safe escort for the bride-to-be. The closing verses of the chapter describe the first meeting of Isaac and his new bride. And we learn how his love for her brought comfort to him after his mother's death. Now right back at the beginning of the talk, I said that this account of the servant's mission was like a portrait of the Christian life. So in closing, I just want to summarise how this is so. Firstly, a Christian is not to seek glory for him or herself. Instead, the Christian's primary concern is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ's interests, seeking first his kingdom and righteousness. Secondly, just as the servant spent time in his master's presence, receiving clear instructions, so we too need to spend time in our Lord's presence through regular prayer and diligent, diligent study of his word to receive clear instruction and direction from him. Thirdly, just as Abraham provided the servant with all he needed to carry out his instructions, so the Lord also equips and enables us to perform his revealed will. Fourthly, as Christians, we are no longer considered as servants, but as sons. We've been adopted as children into God's family and welcomed into his household. And just as in Abraham's household and Bethuel's too, godliness of character was increasingly evident. So, because God works in us and through us to produce the family likeness, conforming us to the image of his son. The image of God is being restored in us, transforming us from our old sinful natures characterised by selfishness, malice, envy, greed, rebellion and strife into becoming kind, generous, hospitable and having an inner desire to lovingly serve each other in practical ways. Fifthly, just as the servant was sent back into the world where Abraham had come from to find a wife for his son, so we too are sent into the world to bear testimony of God 
calling people out of this world to join us in becoming a bride for his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, in verse 66, we read of how having successfully completed all that Abraham had given him to do, the servant gave an account of all that he had done, but not to Abraham, the father. He gave the account to Isaac, the son. In the same way, when we have completed all that God has given us to do, when our journey is complete, we too will give an account to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may God grant us the privilege of hearing those precious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Okay, um, do join us for tea and coffee as, uh, as uh, we close the day. God bless you all.